Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Tech Central. Hello, this is Niall Kitson and you're listening to Tech Radio for 10 years, the number one Irish tech podcast, bringing you the latest in tech from Ireland and across the world. This episode is brought to you by PRTG Network Monitor from Paceler.com. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favorite podcasting app, you can stay up to date with daily newsletters and hourly updates from techcentral.ie. This week, I'm reporting from MoneyConf at the RDS. As you might imagine, this conference is about the intersection of money and technology, with a particular focus on blockchain and cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum that use it. I'll be talking with experts from media, gaming, the arts and more to separate the facts from the hype and find out what lies beyond the world of digital wallets. First off, we sat down with Noel Aitchison, a media producer with Coindesk, which is a media resource for all things cryptocurrency, and we talked about the attraction of Bitcoin. As a media producer, Noel, I guess you have a very interesting perspective on what's happening uh, with blockchain, with Bitcoin, um, with ICOs in general. Um, but tell us a little bit about your background, because you're not a pure media person, you're not a pure marketing person. You came at things from a very interesting angle. I am still surprised, actually, to find myself in media. It's not something I ever expected to end up in, although as an avid consumer all of my life, it's a sector that I always had very deep interest for. I come from finance originally. I, I went straight from getting a degree in applied mathematics into finance in uh, North America and in the UK. And then I left there in the year 2000, set up an e-commerce business in Spain, one of the first in the country at the time, sold that in 2013, spent some time reading to figure out what had been happening in the world in my absence, because you know what it's like when you have a startup, you don't have much of a life. Fintech is something I've always been interested in, and I kept hearing about this thing called Bitcoin. What is Bitcoin? I don't like not understanding something, so I I dove into into the internet and saw a video on Khan Academy, I think it was. Actually, it's very good. I remember getting goosebumps, and I haven't looked back since. Uh, When you talk about getting goosebumps, there's a sense around the event that an awful lot of people had the same or similar experience, but there's also the element of We're not entirely sure what this technology is, but we know it's going to be important. What's your perspective on this? I mean, do you think it is going to be this all-encompassing revolution, or is it going to be something that just integrates into the way transactions and information is handled? I think it is going to be very important, probably not for the same reasons that everyone else is talking about. I don't like the term industrial revolution. I don't like the phrase blockchain will change everything because that's not true. I mean, you will still love your dog at the end of the day. You'll still enjoy a glass of wine after work. It's not going to change everything. And as for the industrial revolution, I think we are in one continuous industrial revolution at the moment. The internet started it. I do believe that blockchain is the continuation of that. And who knows what else is around the corner. I mean, what do you do? You see new technologies all the time, and you must be aware also that change is the constant now. So when you're looking at developments on an ongoing basis, what things have surprised you the most? I mean, we are still very much on the hype cycle, but there must have been a few things that you went, actually, that's a really interesting development. That's going to expand our knowledge of what blockchain can actually do. Well, when I dove down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, and we call it the rabbit hole because once you dive down there, you just can't get out. When I dove down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, I was very excited about the empowerment of the individual, us being able to control our own money. 
after spending a bit of time in this and after actually even owning some Bitcoin, you realize it's not like that at all. We don't control our money. Human beings are quite lazy. And so we leave it parked in wallets at the exchanges. And then we get the hacks that we hear about, etc. I've also been quite surprised, and I should have seen this coming, but I didn't, that decentralization sounds great. And it sounds like something we all want because it's empowering. But in reality, we don't really want it because it involves a lot more work, a lot more chaos and uncertainty and a lot more inefficiency. So that was my big surprise. And again, it shouldn't have been, but it really was. Another surprise when it comes to blockchain technology, I didn't realize how it was going to change structures. For me, it was about money and finance and an alternative way of transacting. But blockchain technology applied to Internet of Things, applied to driverless cars, when you start to realize that it, it affords a new way of moving information of any sort, that's when you can start to see a whole new range of applications that were not apparent back in the early days. One of the um, elements that you've been talking about uh, at the uh, conference over the last few days is the issue of regulation and how much should it be regulated. I mean, when you're looking at so many new and disparate uses for blockchain and cryptocurrencies, at what point do governments, do banks have to step in and go, okay, there's an issue here, we have to look at this? Very different institutions are governments and banks. So we'll take it um, in two different parts. When I first dove down the rabbit hole, of course, the whole thing was about you can't regulate this. And the governments were coming out with things and saying that, you know, we really need to stop this from taking hold. And as Bitcoiners, we'd, we'd get all puffy and say, just you try it, you know, come and get in. And because it was impossible to ban. It was like water. It flows to where there is no barrier. But now, again, this is five years later, four years later, the sector seems to be not all of it, obviously, but most of it welcoming the idea of government regulation simply because of the legitimacy it will give the startups, the ideas, the projects, current and future. When it comes to the banks, that's a whole different thing. The banks can rant and rail against the idea of there being an alternative currency that they can't control, and there isn't really much they can do about it. It turns out there is. It turns out that they can not give bank accounts to startup businesses. And as any startup business knows, that is the kiss of death. If you can't transact, if you can't hire servers, if you can't pay your workers, then you really don't have an operating model. And the banks do control that. In a way, partly that's what Bitcoin was designed to prevent, the banks being able to control like that. But the reality it is, is that it is still hard to transact in Bitcoin. And the banks are starting to realize that instead of a threat, there is an opportunity here. However, it's only an opportunity if the banks don't feel so threatened and they're not going to feel so threatened if they know that the governments are keeping an eye on this and lending tacit support. Well, uh, another piece of trivia that I picked up is that there's something like 1,800 cryptocurrencies floating around the world at the moment. Um, how do you, or how, yeah, how do you decide which ones should attain, for want of a better term, a gold standard um, to go? Okay, we're interested in Ethereum, we're interested in Bitcoin, we're interested in Litecoin. Maybe we should draw the line here and reduce some of the others to novelty value. Aha, market forces. Market forces come into play here. I mean, the top coins are the top coins because they are the ones with the most volume and the most interest. And it is actually very, well, not necessarily easy to transact in the smaller coins. If you're interested, you can do so. There aren't very many barriers to that other than logistical. 
But the market decides. The market is... And the network effects come into play as well. I mean, it's easier to transact in the more liquid ones, so they tend to become more liquid because of that. That doesn't mean that there aren't up-and-comers that could make a very big splash. We see, a, we see them every day, new ones that have a new consensus model, and maybe some of them will overtake Bitcoin. I mean, after all, Facebook wasn't the first social media platform. Google wasn't the first search engine. Maybe something will take, overtake Bitcoin, but it has such a head start and such a deep... Uh, a deep hold of our psyche, I suppose, that it probably would be hard to notch that out of first place. But who knows? I mean, technology is evolving. One thing that people uh, often criticize Bitcoin for, and quite rightly in my opinion, is the boom and bust nature of it. It's not tied to anything of intrinsic value, which means that you have immense bubbles in Bitcoin and then sort of uh, immense crashes to go with it. What do you think the stabilizing forces of Bitcoin are going to be, if any? Liquidity. Once the coin is more liquid, and it's liquid now, but once it is more liquid, then it will probably be less volatile. Volatility isn't based on there not being something backing Bitcoin. There is something very fundamental backing Bitcoin, and that is faith. That is faith that it will be accepted. And it's the same thing that backs the euro and the dollar these days. There's nothing fundamental backing them either. And the volatility is largely because there's more demand than supply, or more people wanting to sell than there are willing to buy. And when there is a constrained liquidity, obviously the price swings are wilder. When more liquidity comes in, and that's going to come from the institutional investors, and it could happen tomorrow, it could happen a year from now, we just don't know, it depends on the infrastructure development, then the question will be, will that influx of liquidity increase volatility because there is not yet the supply to support the demand, for instance, or will it dampen the volatility because those who want to sell will be able to more easily those who want to buy will be able to more easily it remains to be seen uh, I guess an important distinction for people that aren't terribly familiar with blockchain and, Bitcoin and um, cryptocurrencies is that one exists uh, on top of the other and not necessarily independently on the other so we're seeing blockchain technology being integrated by large organizations not with a view to generation token economies or cryptocurrencies but with a view to doing things like controlling internal processes, controlling document management, this sort of thing. Is that message getting through that, look, your banks, your governments can actually use blockchain without engaging with cryptocurrencies? Yes, because in the end, what is money if not information? And what the blockchain can be used for in the private version of the technology, that is a limited number of participants and participants that are invited to join. So there is already a trust factor there. The incentives are very different when you have that situation. You don't need to incentivize people that you don't know to do the right thing. You know who they are. And because the transactions tend to be transparent, you know if somebody's you know, misbehaving. So uh, the use case for that in a limited fashion is, in limited fashion in the sense that it's not open to the public, is that it moves information more efficiently. I mean, I don't know if you've, uh, how many banks, uh, bank accounts you have, for instance. How difficult. You have to go through the same procedure every time you want to open an account in the new bank. And why? The information hasn't changed and the documentation that you have to provide to prove who you are does hasn't changed. But they don't trust each other. What if the banks could get rid of that level of bureaucracy? What if they could trust each other? In other words, know that what bank A sees is... Bank A could know that what it sees is exactly the same as what bank B sees. And if they could eliminate that cost structure, they would be able to offer better service to their clients at a cheaper price and facilitate expansion and value added in other ways. Just finally bringing it back to the consumer, 
How do you think Bitcoin is going to integrate into people's lives? Is everybody going to have a Bitcoin wallet? Is everybody going to be saving uh, things locally onto their computer, uh, just like another app, for example? You know, what will it look like in people's everyday lives? I don't think it will. I don't think everyone will be using Bitcoin at any stage. I do believe Bitcoin is not a replacement currency. It is an alternative currency. And it will be used by many around the world to transact on a daily basis. I mean, you and I live in stable democracy with a trustworthy financial system. Of course, all of that is relative, I know. But a large part of the world doesn't have that luxury. And for them, Bitcoin is a way to access learning online. It's a way to pay your electricity bills and know that it gets to the electricity company. It's the way to I don't know, finance school fees or even raise community funds for a project. It's going to change people's lives around the world, perhaps not in our comfortable societies where we can whip out the credit card and and just with a wave of the wrist pay for our groceries. But that is actually not the most interesting part. Bitcoin, and I'm probably going to uh, get a lot of uh, angry tweets about this, Bitcoin is not the most interesting part. What is interesting is everything else that's happening in the background. The creation of new tokens, the spinning up of micro-economies and ecosystems that have a value, a transactable value, whereas before they couldn't because there was no liquid token that was uh, that didn't need to go through a central authority. I believe that the biggest impact that we're going to see in our lives is the ease of transactions of different types and different levels. That's not Bitcoin, but that's the technology being applied to a new form of transacting. That was Noel Aitchison from Coindesk, which you can find at coindesk.com. Up next, we have an Irish company looking to bring the benefits of blockchain to the charity sector. Niall Dennehy is Chief Operations Officer and co-founder of AidTech, a digital identity management platform. So Niall, tell us a little bit about AidTech, how it works and uh, what sort of mission is behind the company, because it's important to stress you're not an entirely charitable organisation, you're for-profit, but you've got a very altruistic uh, bent to you. Sure, yeah, and uh, thank you for your time, Niall. So AidTech, we're a mission-driven company. Uh, The mission is to bring social and financial inclusion to the undocumented and the underserved. We are a for-profit company, and we believe that digital identity is an enabler for people, and it can help us solve some of the biggest problems in the world. Uh, What we do with our technology is we create um, real-world entitlements. That can be remittances, that can be welfare, that can be aid, or it can be donations or healthcare. We create a digital representation of those entitlements, and we use technology... um, digital identity based on blockchain technology to send those entitlements completely transparently we do it over the blockchain and if you want to visualize a way that this happens in real life is if you are an individual you're on the ground Um, we're doing a project right now for example in Tanzania with a Dutch NGO called Farm Access and we are sending their healthcare entitlements to pregnant women so that they can receive prenatal care postnatal care, antenatal care, um, medical entitlements like folic acid, like your um, your different types of drugs. And what they do is they come to a clinic. Um, we give them a card. That QR card has got a QR code on that, which contains their digital identity. And with the idea then of a blockchain smart contract, we set up parameters beforehand to say that uh, this woman will receive the following drugs at these specific times. And the uh, mission there, back to the idea of being a mission-driven company, is to increase the health and well-being of mothers and babies and to reduce neonatal mortality and to ensure 
ensure that they get the correct treatment at the correct time, um, at the correct location. And the beauty of blockchain means that a permanent uh, traceable record is stored on the blockchain that that happened. You don't see information about the individual on the blockchain, but you can see that 20 women in a clinic in a remote part of Africa received the entitlements that they were supposed to get. That could be iron tablets, that could be your uh, folic acid. And then the uh, what's happening there right now is the, uh, the health um, body in Tanzania, they are making intelligent decisions based on the data that's being generated on the blockchain in a remote clinic five hours away from the capital city. And if you contrast that with what they're doing right now or what they did before we arrived is they had a paper-based system they had a paper booklet uh, written in Swahili and every time they get their entitlement which again could be the folic acid or could be the uh, the uh, the entitlement they uh, they take it away they take it to a data processing center and they only know if everything happened as it should six months after the event happened which is unfortunately oftentimes too late and the data isn't actionable but we've now proven with the technology in a remote part of Africa that impact-based decisions can be made on real-time data. One of the other things that AidTech is working on is fundraising because we've, we've addressed smart contracts there and how quickly they can be updated. But uh, you can also fundraise and donate to a very um, granular level, I suppose. So tell us how that works. Yeah, and a great timing. We're just launching an app uh, this very week with uh, in support uh, with the Red Cross. They're based here in Dublin. Um, in particular, a guy called Danny Curran, the head of fundraising at the Red Cross. He's seen the vision and the ambition and the, uh, the potential that this technology has. But we're about to release an app. It's called Trace Donate. And what it means is an individual, take the, uh, imagine if you're sitting at home, you're on your couch, it's a Wednesday evening. You make a donation. You can make a donation to a group. You can make a donation to an appeal or you can make a donation to an individual. That individual will hold an identity. And the bigger vision here is that right now there are 2.4 billion people without an identity around the world. One of the things that we want to do with our technology is ensure that these entitlements that I keep referring to can be sent to them. In this case here, the entitlement is a donation. But basically what happens is you make a donation. Let's take the example of an individual. That donation goes to them. That can be for food. That could be for a medical kit. That can be for rice, whatever you want that to be. Uh, the individual with the ATech digital identity obtains that. <clears throat> And when they obtain that then from a merchant, uh, for example, you at home on the couch in a Friday night um, in Dublin will get an SMS or get an email to your mobile phone to tell you that your donation was spent in country X uh, by person Y to by product Z. But the thing that we're keen to point out is the information about the individual is only shared with their consent. So if you donate to Adila in Tanzania, who is the mother of uh, the baby uh, who's about to be born in our blockchain solution, if she gives consent for her identity to be shared, you could get a notification to your mobile phone to say that she has bought baby powder to the value of $2 from a merchant in Tanzania, thus bringing traceability to the movement of donations. And if you compare that to what happens right now uh, with donations, typically your donation ends up in a big pool of money. And you haven't got any real visibility about where that's going. Uh, but if you take the, uh, the analogy of a droplet of water with our solution, what you can do is you can, um, you can put a drop, a drop of water into a river, into the ocean, into a, a, a glass of water. You can take a dropper, you can uh, take the droplet of water out of the ocean and you can trace that back to the individual who made the donation and to the beneficiary who received that donation. And again, that's something that hasn't been done before. We are the first company in the world to do it. And 
uh, we believe that it is one of the killer applications of blockchain out there. And again, we're a mission-driven company. We're all about trust and transparency. And that's really what we're doing with the technology that we have built. And we see ATech as being the transparency engine for the movement of data from point A to B to C, so on, uh, across the blockchain. And we think of ourselves as being a data logistics company, with the blockchain then being the infrastructure that is responsible for recording these events transparently uh, in an immutable way and, uh, to, again, to, uh, to weed out corruption. That would be a big mission that we're focused on. Yeah, you're working with a number of charities at the moment, and I guess from their perspective, it's, uh, there's a massive selling point because, as we know, in Ireland, there has been a perception in recent years that charities are poorly managed, that people are being overpaid for the jobs they do, uh, and I guess this adds a, a layer of um, accountability, I suppose, to charities. Yeah, and um, they will tell. We we've spoken with charities themselves, and uh, again, there's a huge amount of good people doing great work, and the the work needs to be done, and their salaries are often justified. But what we found with the public, um, unfortunately, because of some bad actors in the sector, trust has dipped in charities. I think the official stats uh, say now that about 47 percent of people have complete faith in charities, and a lot of them are starting to realise that to restore the faith in charities, they need to be more transparent, especially with donations. And if they can show where they're going, then they are likely to get more funding to regain people's trust. And the thing that we've been hearing from people on the ground and from people in the sector was that up until about 10 years ago, pretty much everybody in Ireland, and this might be uh, something that the, the listeners and yourself feel, everybody had a charity that they made a donation to. You had your own personal charity. But because of the scandals, and it's not just in Ireland, but globally that happened, uh, that trust is on the wane. But that's something that we uh, were addressing initially with the Red Cross here in Dublin. Uh, because of the innovation that they see in what we're doing and they're a very forward-thinking organization. Uh, we're in discussions with 10 other organizations globally. We've signed a partnership with a big global NGO to do it in 50 countries before the end of the year. And we believe that Trace Donate, much like the uh, transparency engine that I spoke of, can be the transparent engine for delivery of donations worldwide to individuals using our platform. And that is uh, with the big vision. When you were explaining the concept to me, it reminded me uh, somewhat of technological leaps that were being made in the developing world, uh, specifically in uh, regard to telecommunications and how easy, or you know, in theory over here, but how easy in reality it is in the developing world for people to um, to embrace these new technologies. Yeah, and um, again, from uh, one thing from personal experience, um, I worked for Ericsson back in the year 2005. I spent a lot of time in Africa, and uh, the first time I went out there, my first assignment or posting uh, was to Mozambique back in 2005. And what I was doing with Ericsson back then was selling a mobile uh, TV streaming service and talking about the future impact of 3G technology at the time. And even in Ireland, we hadn't uh, that technology available to us, but I was surprised that even in so-called developing countries within Africa, they were actually leapfrogging ahead of us. And again, the reason that they did that was because they didn't have the fiber optic cables or the the cables in the ground and they were able to make advances in ways that we didn't in this country because we were too hung up on um, using the existing infrastructure building on top of that but it gave them a lot of advantages and the thing that we found there in Africa um, and M-Pesa probably being one of the best examples was that the people on the ground there, they came up with innovative solutions based on mobile technology that people in the West, including um, the big players, would never have thought of. Selling farm animals, trading between each other, uh, mobile money, mobile healthcare, etc. And they were quite innovative. But we would see the blockchain now 
as being the missing link, um, especially in developing countries where, unfortunately, uh, corruption and the lack of trust is a big issue. And again, if you think about blockchain at its most fundamental level, all it is is a distributed ledger. It's append-only. The information cannot be changed. And going back to what I mentioned then with the project that we're doing in Tanzania with the Dutch NGO Farm Access, effectively what can happen there now is that both the Dutch government and the German government who will be funding the project, they can see in real time what's happening on the ground in a remote part of uh, Africa and they can make actions based on the data but because the data cannot be changed on the spreadsheet, they can trust that this data is correct and that we can make similar um, advances and we can leapfrog over existing healthcare systems that are being used relatively ineffectively in the West and again blockchain is, can almost be thought of as being the next mobile broadband we believe for developing countries. So as a for-profit, I mean, the, the question inevitably arrives, what is your revenue stream? Uh, I mean, we hear an awful lot from startups here about how they're going to change the world. They don't actually say how they're going to make money. So how does your revenue model work? Yeah, so we are, um, going back to the idea, we're a mission-driven company, but we are a for-profit. We're very upfront about that. We believe that to get to scale, you do need to be profitable. But the thing that we're keen to point out is that we do not want, uh, especially in the uh, developed countries, the beneficiaries to pay anything for the technology. But instead then, what we uh, we do is we get the people who can afford it, and who oftentimes have very, very big budgets. That can be the governments. For the efficiencies that we bring to them, they will pay us. And what they would pay us, and what they are paying us right now, is a fee per user per month per identity based on the use case and then with the, the other consumer based application that I spoke about called Trace Donate we simply take a transaction fee there but really it's a recurring revenue model um, you'll often hear of people talk about SaaS software as a service but our model we call it TAS which is transparency as a service and that is what we uh, people are paying us for right now and we that is the model that we are following it's a recurring revenue model a fee per user per month a transaction fee depending on the service then on top of that so for welfare we take a transaction fee for remittances we take a transaction fee for donations but for international aid given the sensitivity of what's involved we wouldn't take a transaction fee in there but recurring revenue per month and it's a scalable model and we're proving it right now that this is the scalable and a future proof model and in looking at campaigns that charities are promoting at the moment um, what causes are being uh, used are there any that are blacklisted um, um, you know how how are these causes selected? Yeah, it's very much down to the uh, the NGO and the types of the, the mission that they're on, what they're trying to solve. Um, it hasn't changed drastically over time, but one thing that we are seeing right now is that there are a lot of charities related to people without any form of documentation. Um, so right now, for example, in the world, there are 65 million migrants. Unfortunately, that's expected to grow to about 250 million by the year 2050. And we are seeing a more concentrated effort uh, from a lot of organizations that we deal with to help the integration of people into society, especially in the West. And if you look at Germany, for example, with all of the, uh, the refugees have come in there without any form of documentation. Uh, we're seeing the Red Cross, our good friends here in Dublin. It's a campaign they're running right now at the moment to encourage people to uh, help uh, refugees. Um, but that's a big push now from a lot of different people. Um, animal charities are becoming really popular for wh whatever reason right now. Um, and again, I'm a big animal lover myself and I can understand that. But a lot of the NGOs, given the history of the organization, what they do, they will have their own, um, again, if it ties in with their mission, but... Um, we are seeing a lot of people, uh, a lot of work going into helping integrate people into society, which I think is an encouraging trend um, globally. And I think uh, NGOs and charities are leading the uh, charge um, from that front. 
That was Niall Dennehy from AidTech, and you can find out more at aid.technology. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Now, token economy systems are a familiar part of the modern gaming experience, but blockchain could change how token systems operate, extending to how gamers can find new titles or even how developers can get paid for them. Nicola Gilo is co-CEO of PC gaming platform Ultra, and he talked with us about a possible way to buy, sell and market games. So, Nicola, I guess one of the interesting things about PC gaming over console gaming, and it's something that we'll touch on a a little bit later, is that flexibility that developers have in generating their own games and getting them published. So tell us a little bit about Ultra and what it brings to the table. Yeah, basically the the main advantage, I would say, for the, um, the small indie developers, for example, is that initially it was easy for them to actually reach a broad audience but right now there is around 300 games published every month on steam which means for them to pierce through the noise extremely complicated so they have actually to spend a hefty amount of money in marketing uh, which is what the big company does but they can't actually afford it so what ultra does on on this point is actually we we work with influencers so influencers can actually bring um, users to buy the game the reason why is, for example, the, um, these game developers, uh, they will want to say, okay, I give 5%, let's say, to the, the people who sell my game. So the influencer can just pick up this game, make a cool video or streaming about this game, and actually any purchase that's going through this process, through blockchain, will actually guarantee him to get paid as an influencer. So that's one of the key uh, features of Ultra. We also have all the advertisement system integrated in the platform. And I would say the, um, the main goal is actually to reward the players, which means those players can actually, uh, by participating on the platform, they can actually uh, buy more games and buy items, buy services. So you're looking at something um, very much on the Steam model where it's uh, all about the players building that community Mm -hmm. and using sort of, uh, I guess, popular streamers or influencers within that community to really um, develop an economy within itself. So at what stage do you reach that critical point? What size user base are you looking at at which you can go, okay, now we've arrived, now we're something that's almost self-sustaining? Yeah, I would say self-sustaining is uh, we have a different model from the competition. So we actually we earn money as a, as a company. We earn money so on a commission for sure. So we are half the price of Steam, which means we do make less money on that end. But actually, we also monetize users on the advertisement. Uh, we also make money. I would say on the let's imagine you are a game developer. You will want to do a beta test. So actually, you are you have the capacity to pinpoint the right audience for your game, and you will reward those users in tokens. So actually, they receive some money, we receive some money. We have many small services that allows us to be profitable faster than companies like Steam, like Valve. So I would say to answer your question, in number of players, uh, around 500,000 players, mostly active users, is already something uh, quite sustainable for us. So when we're looking at, okay, you've, you've, you're building a player base, you're looking at the competition and what it does, where does blockchain as a technology come in that you decide, okay, this is the model, this is the technology that we're going to use, instead of just building a standard competitor? I would say the, 
the main advantage of blockchain uh, for us is first you have the instant payout, which means you can actually uh, pay your developers instantly or pay your players instantly. And at the same time, if I want to give uh, them $0.1, dollars, it costs uh, maybe the same amount of money in fees if you're using a banking system. So the blockchain allows us to do nano, what we call nano payments. So you watch an advertisement, you receive maybe uh, one, two cents. We can actually provide that to the players. So that's one of, one of the key advantages of blockchain. The second one I would say, which is extremely important, is the, to be fraud proof. So For any influencers, for example, they never know. They have to trust someone in between who will tell us, sure, someone actually bought the game. Here is your commission, but who knows? It's the guy paying you that tells you if he, if he got paid or not, you know? <laughs> so this aspect works for advertisement. Uh, when someone watches watch an ad, but you are sure if you actually watched it. Same goes for the, um, so the influencer marketing I mentioned. And uh, yeah, basically the fact of not having to trust someone in between is the same also for the, um, the game developers. And when you're looking to engage game developers, you know, how do you make that pitch? You know, you're saying, okay, you've got greater transparency, you've got a, a definable or a, an identifiable or a transparent link between you and your players. How does that... Um, feedback loop in turn help them from the perspective of developing better games I mean do you get to see that immediate financial return and go okay look the system hasn't been gamed clearly these aspects of what you're working on are working really well so do you think that works from a developer perspective that they can tap into what is becoming popular without becoming what is say overused in a sense that they can see what is maybe becoming too popular on the platform, what is maybe overselling on the platform, and what, what um, type of games, what type of content is almost on the cusp of really gaining mainstream popularity? I would say the, the great thing about Ultra is that the developers can also do market survey. So actually they can, they can target an audience, see if it works, see their feedback. Uh, same goes for the beta. So they can actually do a prototype of a game, they can try it out, find pay actually people to actually try that game which means they will be able to have feedback whether those people like the game, they don't like the game uh, how well did they perform in the game, so is it well balanced so all those aspects help uh, developers to make better games that's one aspect yeah. I suppose when you're looking at uh, specific influencers and what they're interested in and what sort of people are following them mm -hmm. it makes it quite easy for the developers to target specific audiences or specific streamers and go that's who you know that's my audience that's the the fps audience that's who that's who i want to tackle or that's the mobile audience that's who i want to tackle yeah exactly so the the influencers also can uh we can target the influencers ask them to actually cover your game but at the same time they can also come and uh, pinpoint the game and then talk about that specific game and the way it works is uh everyone want to talk for example about the big blockbuster for sure but at the same time if everyone talks about it uh it's less profitable for each of these influencers so if as an influencer you start to dig into ultra and find uh, the new games uh new small indie games as well you can actually talk about that specific games and for you as a um, influencer it's also more profitable so everyone at the end of the day is covered on ultra because there's a sort of supply and demand mechanism right so that's that's also a beauty of the, the system 
So we've talked quite a bit about influencers and their importance to, to Ultra. What actually defines an influencer for you? Are you going out onto the likes of Twitch and going, this is somebody we want to work with? Or do people within the platform naturally gain a following and you decide, okay, I want to tap into that? There are both. Actually, we want work with the big influencers so we can actually talk to them uh, propose them to work with Ultra which they don't they can just register on Ultra and be part of Ultra there is no barrier to entry but there is actually some um, some decision on the, the end of the publishers the developers they can say okay I want an influencer that is this much followers or this type of followers uh, so that's one thing. On the, on the other hand, we also have people who can start from Ultra to become influencers. So they can create content, for example, which is present on Ultra and uh, get rewarded for that. So if someone watch, read all uh, articles, say, okay, this game is great, he buys the game, these players who used to be a players becomes an influencer. And then so the people who bought the game, he will receive a chunk of the purchase. So it seems that it's very much a, a community building exercise as well that you, when you join Ultra, you can you don't have to be passive. The more you contribute to the community, the better it gets, the more you get rewarded for your participation. Yep, exactly. So all those aspects is what makes Ultra uh, extremely different from what's on the market right now. On the market right now, you have many great platforms, um, but the thing is they don't really provide any interaction with the community. Like, for example, if you're on Steam, uh, you will want to, let's say, talk to your users through a newsletter or whatever, uh, it's not really possible. The users belongs really to Steam. Here, what the way we design Ultra is thinking of what would a developer want if he had to build his own platform, how should it look like? And that's what we've been doing with Ultra. We mentioned at the start of the conversation um, the sort of the parallels or Ultra being a counterpoint to the console market. Um, how do you view consoles? I mean, they all have their, their own sort of walled garden approach at the moment, their own little token economies. So how, where do you see Ultra sitting as a competitor or an alternative to that sort of approach? So basically, Ultra uh, is really focusing right now on the PC game market. Uh, console market is also a great market to tap in, but it's harder to get into because this world, as you said, world gardens, because you have like the Sony, the Microsoft, and the Nintendo. Uh, but at the same time, we can totally imagine at one point that we would be able to work with them. And so provide, uh, within Ultra, you could buy their games if the influencer drives them through. So that could be some sort of cooperation base. I would say it's a long shot because all those companies are used to work in their closed environment and they don't especially want to have outsiders of it because so they can keep their own customers, which makes sense in a way. But we, can, we have some... The way basically we design Ultra, we can integrate third-party services. So which means if we want to work with an item trading company or a tournament company, we can actually integrate them within Ultra. And so those game consoles could actually tap into our third-party services as well. This is just a question of API and SDK that should talk together and then actually we can make things happen. That was Nicola Gillo, co-CEO of Ultra. Our final guest today is double Grammy Award winner Imogen Heap. Imogen was at MoneyConf to talk about her latest tech project, Mycelia, a digital passport for musicians to share data and help manage their careers. So Imogen, whenever I hear of uh, an artist doing um, 
uh, an experiment, if you will, or embracing a new piece of technology. Um, I'm thinking either there's some sort of happening behind it or there's something very short-term about to happen, or I guess in your case, you're actually looking to solve a problem. Yes, I, I like to try new things. Um, I'm not very precious about the things that I use, I suppose. And I'm also very lucky to be in a position in my life where I, I can experiment. And so I think, you know, that's the best gift, really, is to be in a, in a place where I can experiment and I have, you know, music to release, but I'm not tied to any publishing label or manager. I can really just be free to go wild and crazy and, uh, and try to kind of get closer to the change that I want to see in the music industry by being that experiment. I suppose having that level of freedom does give you the opportunity to look at problems from first principles that you can look at the small things that you're dealing with and then look to come up with a a holistic, if you will, solution for it. So where does blockchain come into this, um, uh, I guess, three-tiered issue of looking to manage your metadata, also your own contracts and uh, your own payments, I suppose, as well? Yeah, Um, it really comes down to being, being a musician finding it very difficult to just do basic things in the music industry like why can't you share what a song is about or what the licensing terms are about a song or what the correct lyrics are or you know just very simple things basic things for a song why can't you be why can't you share that somewhere that is a is a that that is a point a beacon for that song and then kind of link services around that so that whether you're a radio station or you're a film company or a director and you want to license a song or whether you're somebody just about to go down the aisle um, and you want a piece for your wedding where do you find information about what you can do with the song you can't there's there's no place and so what that leads to is either people going oh I don't want okay I won't collaborate with that song because it's too difficult to do business with that song and we move in a very fast world uh, so people kind of lose interest if they can't find the information they need quickly which means you get the usual suspects having the same you know doing very very well well in a way like me Um, you know I'm here to talk about music and technology and I'm the woman that that people come to talk to about music and tech and that's because I'm known to do that but if there was some layer there where the you know AI through AI and human we can curate data um, to find the people that we need to to come on a panel or um, make a piece of music for the next can't think of a you know beer advert or whatever it might be um how, how can we reach into the the marketplace um and open up innovation for music makers really it's a, a very interesting point that you raised there about the role of ai uh, because when you are dealing with so much information around a song when you're looking at metadata when you're looking at instrumentation lyrics etc there are so many additional pieces of information to go around that song that that, that can be incredibly labor intensive for an artist to have to do on their own or to delegate to staff so where exactly do you see ai coming in uh, to the process mm. well i think um i think where it starts to get really interesting and exciting is where it comes down to curation so i imagine in the future that you would have you know 
a young kid from somewhere in the middle of nowhere who's making some music in their bedroom and they upload it maybe via what we've what we're developing here the creative passport or some other kind of music portal and it goes up and is kind of assessed by tools that go okay this is this kind of music it might appeal to these kind of emotions with this kind of um galvanic skin response heartbeat you know whatever it might be um and it goes into this kind of filter thing which tags it and hashes it and uh, and it becomes a thing then which is kind of waiting to find partners whether you're um you know somebody else alone in your office and you're working on a piece uh, that's really really tiring and you need a bit of extra energy and so out there ai is helping that person and their computer um to find you that perfect piece of music to give you that new energy and excitement of wow i've just heard a piece of music that i really love and it's given me this inspiration and this extra energy to finish this piece of work um so that kind of really really helping the music to find the the listeners out there the people that want to find that music that they don't already know how to create that join quickly um so using ai but also using you know human curation because there's nothing better than that um and helping to signpost music that's out there uh, enabling you know very basic level enabling people like myself uh, and my friends who you know listen to music that maybe the average person might not have heard of because we know the people making the music and so how can we be a beacon for them too how can we share how can we be a part of that storytelling um in an organized way uh, one of the things that uh, I've noticed in talking about people using blockchain in the entertainment industry is the role of community and building up specific communities that you know, as you alluded to there, that there is that level of personalization, but it does require buy-in from almost a critical mass of users. So how do you intend or how would you view uh, a strategy for getting more people to buy into uh, into the blockchain, whether it's through a digital passport or some other strategy? Um, I think essentially you just kind of need to not be thinking about blockchain. It's just what you need to create is something that's just really useful and that just happens to be using blockchain. It shouldn't be something we think about. We don't think about the protocols of the internet and web addressing and all that stuff um, when we go and use Amazon. You know, we just go to Amazon because it's really simple. It's got everything we need. We pay for it. We don't even need our credit cards anymore. We just click buy. You know, we need that kind of... Um, ease of inter- interaction before we want to adopt adopt a technology so at the moment blockchain is like seen as this quite difficult thing and it's very technical and nobody can inter- interact with it because it's very technical and da, da, da. Um, but actually soon that will just all disappear and what you'll have is just really useful apps so you'll just have this uh, invisible layer and then on top of it you, you will have your digital passport with all your, your additional curated and non, non-curated data attached to it. Um, how does this filter back into the music industry then? I mean, you say yourself that effectively you have no sort of operational ties to the industry as such. Um, so how do you sell this idea back? How do you sort of get buy-in from an industry that is famously stuckest and pretty much missed out on the first generation of the digital revolution and by solving their problems that they have every day like admin um like correct spelling like what is the identity of a song and who are the musicians involved in that um who to contact if there's a problem you know 
even on a basic level, you could imagine there's a collection society called the PPL, and they collect monies for performers on a song that may be played on the radio. Um, but a record label might have the details about how long they might hold a license. The PPL would like to know who to pay, um, and it might have on its books it's paying Sony, but in six years, perhaps my works might revert back to me. And who's going to tell the PPL? Is Sony going to be calling them up in a year and going, or in, a, in the day before, going, oh, by the way, I thought you'd like to know that um, you could now divert those payments that you're paying us to Imogen. But PPL want to do the right thing. So how can we create things that are really useful to the industry, solving the problems that we all experience? And the, the crazy thing about, well, so many crazy things, but one of the seriously crazy things about the music industry is that there are hundreds of organisations that have their own databases of songs. They have different ways to categorise them. They have different spellings sometimes, different ordering of of words, uh, different um, kind of uh, song IDs um, from all different countries. They don't match up. And so each one of those companies, record labels, publishing companies, performing rights societies, collective management organisations, whatever they are, digital service providers, um, they've all got their own databases and they all pay a lot of money to kind of make sure that that's intact and up to date. That's a huge expense, um, and it's an expense that the musician is paying for time and time and time and time again. We just want one. We just want one where we all combine our efforts into generating something which nobody owns, but it is extremely useful and time-saving and cost-effective to have a shared database. And it has been tried in the past, uh, the GRD, it was called, the General Rep- uh, Global Repertoire Database, and it failed. And it failed because, I think, um, it, didn't, it didn't think about how the music makers could be part of that problem-solving. So by way of us becoming organised and um, you know, connected, we can add that missing spoke uh, to the, to the problem-solving by being you know, available um, and being, being that connective tissue because you know, our music is what connects the music industry yet the music makers aren't connected so I think in time it will just be a, it'll be a no-brainer for, for a, you know, a label in the, in the future to just be like well of course we want to encourage our, if they haven't already done it um, our, our artists to make sure they have a creative passport because it's going to make it easier for them to pay us uh, or the other way around in fact both ways um, you know it just makes sense but we need to you know we need to be future proof we need to think ahead um, because this this ecosystem is growing and blockchain is you know becoming it is this massive wave um, but if we're not there prepared for whatever may come then we're going to be chasing the tails again like we were with Napster where we didn't you know adopt that technology and legalize it and make it easy for people to have digital music um, mp3s at a very 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 low cost compared to what they had as an alternative which was the cd which is completely overpriced and the music industry is doing very well thank you out of you know re remastering or reproducing old works and just sticking a 20 dollar you know uh, amount on the top of that and it's gone it went from that to you know free you know piracy and mp3 but really they should have adopted that technology and i think in a way i often use that as an example to the music industry if they say to me well why should we do this and i say well you see what happened with mp3 and you didn't get you didn't get yourself organized and you didn't find a way to monetize using this new technology this is what's going to happen everyone is going to find a way and you're going to be behind 
and you can always say, you know, this is going to cut down on your own admin fees. This is yeah. going to sort of make it easier and cheaper for you to run your own industry. Exactly. So they, they can be left to do the things which they also are, you know, are, are much better at and should be there for, which is the kind of creative side, the marketing side, promotional side, is the people side of, you know, working with their music, um, the, the musicians that they've signed or whatever. It's by... It's those personal relationships that they should be nurturing, not how to, you know, dodge another audit. It's um, it, that shouldn't that shouldn't be part of the costs of a of a of a, of a creative industry. It should be focusing on how to drive and progress creativity and great songs. Looking at it from the side of the creative, uh, leaving industry to to one side, people can be very. Um, I, I don't want to say precious, but. Uh, can be um, slightly protective of their own work and the elements that go into it. Say, if somebody is using a, a specific stack, specific symbol, specific synthesizer, etc., etc. So naturally, pe- people can be quite protective of their sound. How do you get people to sort of buy into the idea that look, transparency is is the way forward? People are going to figure out how you made that sound to, in the first place. So why not just make it more more public? Um, yeah, it's funny. I mean, this idea of you know keeping the secrets of a symbol or you know and then there are people like that um i've always found the opposite that the 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 minute i share you know what i'm up to nobody's ever going to copy exactly what i do and if they do well done and then i but it's it's up to me to keep innovating and keep being a better creative and a better artist and developing my sound if somebody's copying me they're just you know one step behind um i think really it comes down to there might be people who want to hide their identities for instance if they're a ghostwriter for example you know how do we deal with that um essentially it's it's just enabling the possibilities to choose what you want to do if i i have found that by saying i use teenage engineering you know the op1 synth on this song whatever well it hasn't happened yet but i imagine that if teenage engineering were like doing a little scrape on the Music Maker database to find out what songs were using Teenage Engineering OP1s, and they discovered this song called Tiny Human, um, they might like go, ah, oh, yeah, we should, we should you know, get in touch with them, maybe she can make a new patch for our new, uh, you know, our new piece of gear, and maybe we could you know, give her a thousand pounds to do that or whatever, because it'll sell more stuff. It's just another way to bring in different types of revenue for the Music Makers, because the thing is, we've, we've become so, like, um in a way just uh what's the word just just blindsided by streaming by this these tiny amounts and thinking how are we ever going to make a living you know by these reduced royalties but that isn't shouldn't be the problem the problem is is that we're only talking about that one tiny bit of revenue like how I make my money might be writing music for a play or it might be going to do a talk or a workshop or doing some co-writing for somebody who does sell records um, or doing a producing you know a producer fee for something or you know doing a some design for somebody's album you know so many people have so many different skill sets it might be it might be go on tour with this really famous band because I've got a child and I can also double up as a nanny you know there's so many options out there um, once we have our our, our data in order and our skill sets um, then we can create better meaningful collaborations and encourage more business to come our way but really we're just like only thinking about touring and streaming and 
and the people out there who are doing well you know they've invested in headphones and fashion and you know and that's what we want to help people get to a, a kind of at their own levels is that kind of you know whatever is interesting to you in your life whether it's you know as a musician but you might also be interested in green technology or you know baby clothes you know who knows um and diversify because that's the strength it's certainly in my career is diversify do what interests you it all comes down to music at the end of the day um but it's those connections in technology in in driving things forward that has brought me business because people want to work with people who are working with their passions so just lastly what exactly does uh, the creative passport look like at the moment so um, at the moment it's pretty much um, a bare bones app which will be going live in September and it will do a very basic thing it will it will be a peer-to-peer verification for music makers so you have an app and I will have an app it will be verified um, and, I, and then I will be able to verify Zoe Keating is Zoe Keating and then she will be able to verify that Amanda Palmer is Amanda Palmer and I will also be able to verify Amanda Palmer is Amanda Palmer and we'll create this social graph um, you know slowly one step at a time and each time somebody becomes activated with their own passport then they can also activate others so it just becomes a real a natural organic growth um, and we don't need to have industry verification behind that but in time there might be services who only want to interact with you if you are industry verified so they might have to have a PRS number or a PPR you know whatever as a way to fit into their existing um, uh, business models so um, so on one layer it's just enabling people out there to put themselves on the map quite simply I mean I use the analogy of Google Maps quite a lot because there are those little restaurants that are on Google Google Maps that we can find that we wouldn't normally see on the high street and maybe we're a bit nervous to go down the back roads because we don't know what's down there but if we can see on a map oh there's our little beacon of that nice little Georgian restaurant down that odd little street oh I'm going to go there and that little Georgian restaurant is, is doing alright because it's getting reviews and it's getting people knowing about that and I see that as you know how, what the Creative Passport can do for music makers it can literally put us on the map That was Imogen Heap and that brings our coverage of MoneyConf to an end Our programme for this week was sponsored by PRTG from Paisler which monitors your IT infrastructure 24-7 and alerts you to problems before users even notice So if you're interested in working smarter faster and better check out their system at www.paisler.com of course you can get the latest in tech with an irish accent at techcentral.ie or every week on digital radio with rte radio one extra until next time from me niall kitson thanks for listening get tech radio subscribe for free with itunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie Tech Radio is produced by DigitalAudioProductions.com. Tech Central.